Hello, 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 everybody out there in podcast land. Welcome to Stat, Shocking Traumas and Treatments, and I am your host, Karen Wickiam, coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Here is part two of the Unit 731 Human Medical Experiments. Instead of me going on and on for whatever reason that I do that, <laughs> let's just get right into it. I last left off talking about Ping Fang, which was the main Unit 731. That was the main unit, but they did have satellite units. So the first one is ANDA. It was 20 kilometers from Ping Fang, and it was an open air testing ground. So it was used for outdoor tests. They would test for plague and cholera and other pathogens to experiment in biological warfare. They were trying to test a way to drop bombs or somehow get it in the air to infect people. And they were having a hard time doing that because um, the higher up they went, the concentration of dispersal would go down dramatically. So they started off by testing on these innocent victims. So what they would do, they would have 10 to 40 people at a time, and they would tie them to crosses. Oh, jeez. Okay? And so they would make these circles. So maybe it would be a smaller circle in one spot, and then a bigger one and a bigger one. And when they would drop, they would see how far out it would disperse. So say the ground zero people that were in the small circle would get it the most concentrated. So they wanted to see how far it would go. So what they were doing was at this point, they were releasing infected mosquitoes. So Ishii came up with... How do you... I know. Well, because they were actually growing them in labs and having infected mosquitoes grow in labs. He actually devised or made uh, a patent for ceramic bombs so that they would break easier. There wasn't as much as combustion and expo explosion needed. So he there was actually ceramic plants all around Northeast China and Japan that made these specifically for weapons to release biological warfare. So yeah, they would fill them full of mosquitoes. And, and you can imagine like how many mosquitoes would survive from a bomb, but... So were they like in, inside the bomb? Yeah, so they were inside these ceramic containers that they would drop and see how many would survive. So this was just like early on, okay, let's test with mosquitoes. Let's see how well it works. Let's move on to other things. So that's what they did. They would also drop other types of bombs for these tests. Okay, so this is how fucked up this is. So they started with the mosquitoes at this place. Then they moved on to bombs that would produce more shrapnel. So they would cover their face with protective or they would cover their head with protective gear and they would put metal sheets on their chest so that when the bomb dropped, the shrapnel wouldn't hit the most critical parts of the body. But the rest of them was left exposed to be infected by the mosquitoes or other pathogens would settle onto their skin or they could breathe it in. But, you know, they wouldn't die in the explosion. They'd just die a slow and painful death. Yeah, I know. Like, I just think about the... It's just it's diabolical. Yeah, the thought put into that. We want them to survive. So let's protect them so that we can kill them. Like, it's just, it's so twisted. And these people that they had 
tied to the crosses to use the experiment. They were just like local villagers or prisoners of war or... Mostly it was people that, remember I told you there was that um, Contempi, I, I believe it was called, was that really scary police force that they would send out and basically kidnap people off the streets. Right. So when they would take over towns, they would take a certain amount of people and say, that's it. Some of them were prisoners of war. Some were American, English, uh, from China, from Russia, depending on who was in their territory, and they decided to were prisoners of war, to make prisoners of war. What, what year are we in? We are in World War II, so the late 1930s, early 1940s. Okay. Okay, so once this happened, they would mark their chests with a number, because they're not people. So they would mark their chests with a number, see who would get infected, and then monitor the infection until they got over it, or check the severity of it, or died. So yeah, so that was a uh, unit. Uh, did they have a unit number for that one? No, it was just it was Anda. So the next unit was in Xingjing. It was called Unit One Hundred, and it was run by a veterinarian by the name of Wakamatsu Yujiro. So his job was to infect domesticated animals and sort of find a way to infect their food supply. So anything from fish in found in rivers so they could contaminate the, the water source or, say, dogs, cats, horses, that kind of thing. So, or, you know, mules, donkeys. So what they would do, or ch chickens, just if you can think of it, they needed it for transportation or food or just companionship. They were trying to find a way. So the best way to do this was through rats. They actually had rat farming going on. They were paying locals to produce rats for them. Remember I told you before there was like over 300,000 rats or more used in these experimentations, right? Or That's experiments. a lot of rats. Mm -hmm. So for the people of the town, they were told that it was for completely different reasons why they were of raising course. the rats, right? <laughs> and it was a great... That's going to use them to kill you. Yeah. And so they were... Um, it was a great source of income. If you think about it, these are incredibly poor people that were told, all you have to do is raise rats and hand them over to us and there you go. So, of course, they were looking to infect the rats. The rats would infect the animals and then they would kill people. Rats have always been effective in the spread of disease. They just get in everywhere. Mm -hmm. So it's not their fault. They're just one of the most hardy creatures on earth. Yeah, that and cockroaches. It was also a bacteria factory. They were using it to test on animals to see the best way to spread it among humans, but they were also making bacteria there. They produced a large amount of anthrax, and one is called glanders, and it's uh, it attacks horses. It's a horse-specific disease. So, yeah, I know. How do you I make anthrax? You find the bacteria, and well, I'll get into how they sort of break down and okay. isolate things in a in a little like bit. I know that sometimes in farming, anthrax can be found or something. Yeah, I'll. Uh, well, it's a bacteria, right? So it's got to be around anything living, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. 
And then the other thing that they did there was sabotage. So obviously, 100%. So you've got the animal aspect, you've got the bacteria factory, and now sabotage. How's the best? So they had these three departments there specifically working just on these things. So they were mixing poisons with food to learn what the right amount of poison was. So not too much, not too little, just right. And they had farms in which they grew local crops that they used for testing. So can you imagine being a very poor villager, seeing these lush crops being grown? And they were grown specifically to find a way to spread disease. They were not being used for food sources. So you'd see this growing and be like, oh man, that's, that's amazing. Only it was for diabolical reasons. So the next place is Guangzhou, Unit 864. It was so in an area, the Nami area. And it was headquartered at Zongshan Medical University. That was in this Nami unit in Guangzhou. So a former member of the unit by the name of Mariama Shigeru had been interviewed. So a lot of these um, ex-unit members in Youth Corps came forward and talked about some of the things that took place there. A lot of them did it anonymously because they were still afraid of of uh, repercussions. So I'm just going to like outline some of the things that he said that he saw there. They would starve prisoners to death, see how long they could live just on water. They would give contaminated water with typhus. They did surgeries every day and they saw many bodies stored in the basement. They raised rats for experiments in spreading the plague. And there was, this is just like, I mean, if that isn't bad enough, they didn't have incinerators there. So there was a pond right in the middle of this complex full of chemicals just to dissolve bodies. So can you imagine these bodies being dumped into these into this pond of chemicals at various states of decay, various states of being dissolved? Like, how fucked is that? On my way to work, I'm not saying this is a joke in any way. On my way to work from my barracks to my, or my living quarters to the building over there, I have to pass a chemical pond with dissolving bodies in it. I'm just absolutely insane. Okay, so uh, Beijing. Don't be uh, drunk one night. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would hope they'd have some sort of fence or something. I'll be there for you. you Let's don't go be, skinny dipping. <laughs> you don't want to play in the fountain. I'll be there for you. <laughs> okay. All right. Just, yeah. There's no... You guys know we use humor because we don't know what else to do. Okay, so in Beijing, there was uh, Unit 1855. And there was a bacteriologist that worked there who, this is an account that he gave. He's anonymous. There were large numbers of test tubes. We had all lined up on shelves. Each test tube was identified by a label showing what kind of bacteria was in it. Six of them contained plague germs. So can you imagine? Here's a here's an area. It's all test tubes. So cholera, plague, blah, blah. Like, Typhoid. You name it, right? Malaria, and, whatever. There was an interpreter that worked there from 1942 to 1943, and his name was Choi Hyung Shin, telling what he saw. So 
When I first arrived there, some 100 prisoners were already in cells. Whenever the Japanese doctors made contact with people being tested, they always did it through an interpreter. The tests were infected with plague bacteria, cholera, and typhus. Those not yet affected were kept in different rooms. There were large mirrors in the rooms with the subjects so that those undergoing testing could be observed better. I spoke with the prisoners using a microphone and looking through a glass panel, interpreting the questions from the doctors like, do you have diarrhea? Do you have a headache? Do you feel chilly? The doctors made very careful, careful records of all the answers. With the typhoid test, 10 people were forced to drink a mixture of germs, and five of them were administered vaccine. The two groups were kept separate from each other. The doctors watched them closely and questioned them through my interpretation, recording the answers. The vaccines proved effective with all five to whom it was administered. The other five suffered horribly. In the plague tests, the prisoners suffered with chills, fever, and groaned in pain until they died. From what I saw, one person was killed every day. So this um, interpreter, like, faked having an appendicitis. He couldn't, he couldn't handle this job. Like, there were a few, a few people there that just were like, this is absolute horrific. I can't be a part of this. So, so they were like locals that were hired to do this? Well, there were... Yeah, it, it that, was Chinese prisoners or something, probably, right? Yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna get into this as well. No, that that wasn't a local that was hired. They they denied any military personnel ever worked at these places. It was all civilian professionals and people. So this guy was a civilian that had already was working for like he was employed in Japan. He was multilingual, so he was sent to this place to interpret so they could get the right answers or get. Uh, thorough answers. So he faked having appendicitis to get sickly, but, and he tried to go, get away, he tried to escape, but he was caught by the, the Kempentai officers. And believe this, oh, this is horrible. So they tortured him. They did water torture with hot peppers in it. And this caused him permanent lung damage, and he had been in and out of hospital for the rest of his life. So yeah, he, he just tried to get away. He couldn't handle it, and he gets tortured. Okay. But he, he eventually, what, did he go back to work, I guess, or? I don't know about that part. I didn't. But he, he survived enough to, to to document this or be interviewed? Or? Yeah, he was interviewed. Yeah, and this was in the 90s. <sighs> a lot of people came forward in the 90s because a investigation was launched. People were finding out about it. The, in China, like civilians, people were finding out and they're going, what happened? And we want to know more about it, and we want people, uh, you know, charged. And we want it exposed to the the rest of the world. So this is when some of them came forward and actually talked about their experiences anonymously or given their names. And for some of them, it was it was a confession. And they felt that they could somehow come to peace with what they did. And those are pretty much the ones that did come forward because they had a conscience. And they realized years later what they had done. And then there was others that were just like, it was war. What's what's the big deal? Yeah, it was for the better of all people. So whatever, like they just didn't compute. Okay, so another one is in Singapore. It was known as Oka 9420. So this is an interview from Othman Walk, who was a, a lab assistant for over two years. So I'm just going to list some of the things he said here. Some of the prisoners were made to pick fleas from rats 
and put them in containers. They had hired over 40 rat catchers to go out and get them and then, or collect them, and then the rats were injected with plague pathogens. They would shave their bellies of the rats. So this is how involved this was. They would get these rats and they would have these fleas that were either infected with the pathogen or were intended to get infected from the rat. They'd get the rat, they'd shave their bellies, and there would be one or two or three uh, fleas in one test tube. They would put the test tube on the belly of the rat and hold it there until it fed. So this wasn't just like, oh, let's throw rats in with mosquitoes. They were very, you know, intricately, systematically doing this for each and every rat. Think about that. Like that's a lot of friggin' work to get this right. So then either the rat was a plague carrier or the flea was a plague carrier. Um, and then they would breed the fleas. Then the infected fleas were then shipped to a, a Thailand branch of Unit 731. Next, we have Hiroshima and actually an island off of there called uh, Akonshima. So this little island had been producing chemicals for chemical warfare since 1928. Mustard gas, yipperite, lewisite, and cyanogen. The, the yipperite is used in mustard gas and the lewisite, I forget what it's for, but it's all components of some of the worst uh, chemicals for, for people. And they wanted it kept so secret that they actually removed this little island from maps. <laughs> so you couldn't find it. it. Used to be an island out there. <laughs> oh, I guess we were wrong. I guess it was flooded. Oh, yeah, it was flooded. That's yeah. And the people that work there, most of them ended up dying because they were exposed to these chemicals. <laughs> Japan adamantly denied that any military personnel worked at Unit 731 or any of their branches. Many of the employees were recruited from the Youth Corps. So this I found horrible and fascinating at the same time. So at the time, it was an empire. And civilians had the same amount of hierarchy ranks. <laughs> Sorry, guys, I don't know how you put up with me. Um, so they had the same hierarchical ranks. <laughs> Why do I bother writing these words? Because I know it, it makes sense to me. I just can't say it. Say it, please. Hierarchical. Yeah. Ranks as the military. So anything from blue collar workers all the way up to civilian generals. So university researchers made up the majority of the civilian staff and their status was attached to the university they attended. So if they attended Tokyo or Kyoto University, those were the creme de the creme of uh, universities, then you were given higher positions. And each researcher had their own lab at the university they were assigned. So it was a big deal. Yeah. So you're a student. you like prestigious, like here's your own lab. Yeah, well, yeah. Oh, yeah. And a lot of people um, working under them. And if you are a researcher, that's like, that's what you aim for, is that lab to do all your stuff. So, you know, everything you dream of. The other group, assigned to these units were children from the youth corps. So. Oh, I think I'm not going to like this. Yeah. The students were closely monitored. And if they showed academic excellence and were particularly patriotic, the teachers would refer them to the youth corps. 
So in essays or papers that they wrote, if they were just exalting the emperor, they, okay, this is a this is a good uh, candidate. So it was its full title was the Imperial Rule Assistance Young Men's Corps. Okay, it was modeled after Hitler Youth. No women. No women. No, of course, of course not. We're not that <laughs> I guess some some of us are, but yeah. Okay, yeah. So it was modeled after the Hitler Youth. And they were trying to bring together Japan, Nazi Germany, and fascist Italy together to be one kind of like superpower. So it was an elite paramilitary youth branch of the... Imperial Rule Assistance Association Political Party. So they were actually trying to come into power. It was a military fascist. Well, you know. That's a bit of a mouthful, that one. <laughs> I know. Japan was an empire from 1868 to 1947. The Corps was aimed at teaching 14 to 17-year-olds basic survival skills, first aid, life skills, cultural lessons, traditions, and basic weapons training. Basically, they were brainwashing them. The main intent, like I said, was to brainwash these young men to be a part of a fascist military government. This is why they were perfect to work under Hiroishi at the uh, camps, because they were young, impressionable, and obedient to the empire and the youth corps doctrines. Students of the youth corps were sent to serve at Pingfang as assistants to researchers. They were put through a tough, accelerated schedule of study in biology, math, bacteriology, and foreign languages. So it was a three-month, like, intensive program to learn these things. So this is what their work included. Carrying organs freshly removed from victims from the dissection rooms to labs where preservation or further research would take place. And being exposed to these atrocities warped their young minds. So could you imagine... You'd go to this room, you'd watch a person being vivisected alive. You'd have these organs handed to you, well, you know, like in a container, and then you would take them for preservation. So at 14, 15, 16, 17, you become desensitized. So they're already loyal to, like, the emperor. They've been indoctrinated in this youth corps. And then they are told that they are so special that they get to work at this place. And this is the work they do. And they would look up to and admire and hope to be, you know, one of these doctors or scientists one day. So they would do whatever they could to please them. Well, so if you didn't, you probably got booted or brought shame onto your family or, or became one of the yeah test victims. Exactly. Yeah. So um, it's just they, they bred monsters. So they bred bacteria, but they also bred monsters there in terms of oh, the. the, the yeah. OK, so I'm going to break down the areas that they really focused in on. I'm just going to give a little note on all of them. And this is these are the things that they that the, the victims were you know, um, inflicted upon rodents and insects. So rodents and insects have been spreading disease throughout the ages. So they harvested the rats from Manchuria. Like I said, they enlisted school children to raise them 
Rat farming was huge income, was a huge source of income, and the rats would be collected and sent to various units, primarily Ping Fang. At one unit, 10 prisoners over the age of 50 were moved into sheds. Check this out. This is just absolutely horrific. So they were told that they were special. They were over the age of 50. Hey, you don't have to work. You don't have to do anything. Just make 100 fleas a day for us. Uh, excuse me? Yeah. Produce 100 fleas a day for us. How did they make fleas? Okay, so they were dressed in thick padded clothes. Okay? Fleas were put in on their bodies with these thick padded clothes held on. So they were human, like, food for these fleas. So there were four rules that they had to follow. Do not come in contact with other prisoners. Never talk about this work to anyone. Always sleep with your clothes on and do your required work every day. When it was time to hand over the fleas, the men were made to take off their heavily padded clothes, turn them inside out, and pick out the fleas that um, had reached the size of about a match head. Then they were to um, put them into aluminum boxes, and then the Japanese military would take them away to these units. They kept the smaller fleas in their clothing until they grew bigger. They dressed like this all year, regardless of the temperature. They weren't allowed to bathe, none of it. And at the end of it all, all 10 men were, were killed when they were done with these experiments. Yeah. I'm shaking my head here. I know yeah. you guys can't see that. I'm just like... So the next like, one... It's just... Yeah. I, the only word I can think of is diabolical. Like, it's just... It's, it's so... That's the only word that fits it to me. Like, who thinks this shit up? They do. I mean, this this kind of mind. These people, like, they were the, they were wood. Remember, they were that they were not human beings. They just saw them as a means to an end to product. product. What is it? You said product. Yeah, they were just. They weren't people to them. They Supplies. were a means. They were a means to the to an end. No. They these people were used, or these pieces of wood, this lumber, as they would call them, was used to help everybody else out. Next, we're going to talk about cholera. And so this is a bacteria that lives in water. The water gets contaminated by it. People drink it. it can you can find it on unwashed fruits, things like that. it's It's horrible. Um, so they would inject this into prisoners. And once they were infected, they would send them out into the local towns to infect people. And once it was confirmed that this disease had taken hold in the towns, the army and researchers would move in and examine the victims and test methods of treatment. And they also infected dogs as well. 20% of the infected people died. The other just, they suffered horribly. I don't know much about cholera, thankfully, because it's, you know, I guess largely not in the modern world, but how did no? It is. It's just where there's uh, well, I mean, dirty, dirty water supply. Nations, it's yeah. Not. But how did they protect themselves? Like obviously, right now, being during a pandemic, we're all PPE'd up. Well, they were too. They so, they had masks. They had uh, they wore protective clothing, like what, which was you know the standard for the day. Okay, I'm sure just you know a bit different. Maybe it was cloth. Yeah. Remember that they were doing hand washing and using aseptic technique uh, to help 
fight disease if a they they found that I mean this is where it kind of all started is that their their military would stay healthy because they would treat a wound and that way the person the prisoner could go back out whereas before the they they found that 80% of the deaths and injuries were caused by disease not by an actual bullet right infection yeah. etc mhm so they would well it sounds like there were times when they would heal the prisoners or you know and then re do something to them but yeah i guess too if they had vaccines for the people studying them then they were also safe because of that too right? yeah but they wanted people to but they were testing the vaccine so sometimes i mean you don't want to get that vaccine because it was a test vaccine to see mm. so i mean here's here's your scenario you can get it and die you can get it and get vac- vaccinated and live you could get vaccinated and die even if you lived you the likelihood of you still getting vivisected to find out why you lived was was incredibly high so cholera causes uh, severe diarrhea and vomiting and you and it happens fast and you get become severely dehydrated within a day it's often um associated because it it just depletes the body of so much that people get these uh like skeletal looking faces because it's they're just suck dry of everything and people's skin turgor is so bad so basically the they're so dehydrated that when you pinch the skin it would stay up in like a tent position because they're so dehydrated and it's rapid death if you do not get replacement fluids and um antibiotics yeah like you, you die within a you know two or three days if that because your body just can't well electrolytes and you know important fluids that are vital for organs functioning probably kidneys and whatever I mean, mm-hmm. your kidneys if you don't have fluids your kidneys go your toast anyway right so- oh yeah now the people the cholera once it's once it's once you have it if you don't get immediate treatment you're uh, you'll die okay so the next one is called ehf or epidemic hemorrhagic fever remember i, I told you about this is one of my biggest fears is getting a, a disease that causes me to like bleed to death mm-hmm. so it's a virus can, um, carried by ticks so this is one of the most disturbing ones to me and you'll find out why is that like a is that like a ebola ebola is like a hemorrhagic yeah it's it's not that particular one but yes it's it's that type of family of of diseases so they tested on monkeys and what they would do is they get the ticks and they would mash the ticks up Okay, and then they would mix them into a saline solution, and then they would inject this into the monkeys. If the monkeys got the disease, they would draw blood from that monkey and inject it into another monkey. And the second monkey, they would, if it was infected, they would euthanize that monkey and then remove their organs and grind them down until they could isolate the disease and use it as biological warfare. So you asked earlier, like, how do we draw, like, how do we get, like, where does anthrax come from? How do you isolate it? Well, I don't know if it's done in that, like, for anthrax, but this is what they did for the uh, EHF. Now, this is, this is the part that really uh, is upsetting, I think. It was an open secret that the monkeys were actually people. On paper, they listed 
oh, them as I monkeys, but they were actually human subjects. Oh, my God. Yeah. So dehumanizing them again. They're wood. They're called the Murata. Or they're monkeys. Yeah. So not human. <sighs> my neck's getting sore from shaking my head. Yeah. Just unbelievable. Okay. So the plague. The plague was an ideal biological weapon as it gets people sick fast. It is highly fatal. So cholera takes 20 days to incubate. The plague can kill you within three days. Oh, Christ. No so, wonder we lost, like, whatever, mm-hmm. half the population of Europe yeah or something. <laughs> so the cholera is good in some respects, but it takes a long time. So you can use it. Yeah, let's use it in these areas. You know, it'll kick in eventually. But the plague, that was that was the... the black the, death? <laughs> yeah, that was their gold standard for killing people. The plague, like the bubonic plague, or is there like a different... Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, actual, there's different... Like, scientific name for it? Well, there's, there's different bacteria that can be a plague, but oh. yeah, it's pretty much the bubonic or mnemonic plague. But plague. <laughs> plague. Randall flag. The Randall oh, flag. Stephen King yeah. Okay, so what they did was they actually attacked six places in the Manchuria area. So they dropped bombs containing the flag. <laughs> so they bopped <laughs> flobs. <laughs> <laughs> This is what this is what Carolyn will ask me stuff. Sometimes she'll be like, you know, what's uh, that? And she'll use like a completely different name that she's trying to describe somebody. Yeah, but you always figure it out. And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Who are you trying to say? Yeah, only this is like, okay, I, I don't know if I'll cut this out. Maybe you guys get to enjoy this insanity. They dropped bombs containing the plague in six different areas in Manchuria. So the plague germs were mixed with wheat, corn, uh, cloth scraps, and cotton, and were dropped from the air. Okay, so the one attack occurred on October 1940 in um, Port Ninbo. There was a resident there who was 14 years old at the time by the name of uh, Kian uh, Guifa, who came forward and talked about the experience that they had in this one area. He said, uh, one day a Japanese plane flew over and kept circling. Then it dropped something that looked like smoke. The next day, people started getting sick and dying. Three days later, people died. My own family died, one after another. There was misery all around. Everyone who died did so in pain and agony, going into convulsions. At first, the bodies turned red and then black after they died. So that was... um, that was one account. Now, I wonder, how did he survive? I don't know. He obviously was immune to it. I mean, yeah. there's going to be a tiny amount of people that will be immune, right? Hmm. So another one uh, took place in September 1942, and here's another witness. I was 15 years old at the time, and I remember everything clearly. The Japanese plane spread something that looked like smoke. A few days later, we found dead rats all over the village. At the same time, people came down with high fevers and aches in the lymph nodes. Every day, people died. Crying would be heard all through the village. My mother and father and 
all eight people in my family died. I was the only one in my family left. My mother had a high fever all day, and she was crying for water and clawing at her throat. Then she let out a roar like a lion and died before my eyes. As soon as the people started dying, the Japanese came into the village wearing protective clothing and masks. They went around the village for three days, giving injections to the people. They administered two shots, one in the arm and one in the chest. Some people that got the shots also died. They were testing vaccines. So some of them worked and some of them didn't. Okay, so um, can you imagine being that 14-year-old in a small village? Most of the village dies. He watches eight members of his family die, his mother and father. There would just be screams and cries and moaning and horror going on everywhere. I mean, bodies would pile up. They would decompose. So... Japanese researchers took over a house at the top of the hill at this one place. It was about a kilometer away. And they turned it into a vivisection laboratory. Another survivor by the name of Kien Tangjian said this, quote, We were told that if we went to Rin's house at the top of the hill, we would get treated. My friend told me that his wife went to the house for treatment and later was seen strapped to a table with her body split open. Her feet were still moving. There's no doubt that she was dissected alive. These attacks showed that disease could be delivered by air. To them, this was a success. Okay, so it was, you know, it was time for them to get back to work and figure out how they could do it in larger and larger areas, you know, and pinpoint where they wanted to to do this. All right, the last thing they focused on was um, frostbite. The frostbite experiments were directed by a doctor, uh, Yoshimura Hasato, and he was a physiologist. Cold weather combat was a real and serious problem. During the Russo-Japanese War, they fought in very cold temperatures, and the army medics treated large numbers of Japanese soldiers that suffered from frostbite, mostly toes and fingers. You know, you can get in the ears and the, and the nose as, you know, they're the first places to get hit. Many of the uh, fingers and toes had to be amputated. So now they were looking for a way to treat frostbite. So. Because soldiers without fingers and toes aren't helpful. Yeah. They're, in a sense, just, you know, not people either. They're just maybe more important weapons or tools. Mm -hmm. The prisoners were taken out in below freezing temperatures, tied up, arms bared, and soaked with water. The water was poured over their arms regularly, and sometimes the ice that formed on them would be chipped away and water poured over it again. The researchers would then strike the limbs regularly with a club. If the arm sounded like a wooden board after being hit, it indicated that the limb was now frozen through. They also did this to legs and feet. Sometimes the flesh and muscles would fall away from the bones. And the bones were so brittle that when they were hit with the clubs, they would shatter. So, yeah. Yeah. The end result was gangrene and rotting flesh. So if they didn't explode when being hit, when they thawed out. Okay. So they tried different methods of warming the limbs up. So they tried, you know, the whole friction using your hand, rubbing and Of course, that didn't work. It was a solid block of ice. Then they would place them in hotter and hotter water 
to the point of boiling water. And then they were submerged in fire. So there would be a big fire. They would put them closer and closer and closer to the fire. Jesus. These tests were... I want to swear. I just... Swear. Let it out. Holy fuck is all I have to say. Yeah. I mean, we know now, obviously, you warm up the tissue slowly because it's dangerous to do otherwise. But I can't imagine just like... People are... the, The pain, number one, and then... You know, you get to a point where there's numbness or you can't feel anything, but then you would submerge that like in hot water, like. Oh. I, you know, and watching this being done to you. Like, that's my arm being submerged in that boiling water. So, you know, it's in boiling water, but you can't feel it necessarily. Well, but what about the area where the, the, the freezing stops and the healthy flesh is? Right. I believe you'd feel a lot there, right? I know. I mean, you think... I know what you're saying. You just think about, you know, sort of cartoons where people get frozen and then, you know, they fall apart or something. Yeah. I mean, literally, that's what would happen. And what would that smell like? Like, I mean, that's just horrific. I didn't even think about that part. Um, Well, no, because the reason why I'm thinking of it, because it would be everywhere. And you're literally smelling your own flesh rotting or cooking. While you're fucking alive. Yeah. Okay, um, these tests were conducted on men, women, and children. In December 1944, this is very key. So we're, we're done with, with that, okay? And I'm just sort of tying up in this the end of this episode. So in December 1944, the Japanese military wanted to hit Um, American high population areas with biological weapons. They wanted, it was called Operation PX. So they were to launch planes and spread plague and cholera. And they uh, put, um, had submarine crews on a suicide mission where they would be infected with disease and have them run upon the shores and, and, and spread disease that way. The date of attack was to be on March 26, 1945. And a general by the name of Umezu Yoshigro refused the orders and stopped the attack. And he saved thousands, if not tens of thousands of people's lives. So can you imagine, you're a general in the Japanese army. You're as high up as you can get. And he's like, no, I'm not doing this. I don't want to call him a hero. <laughs> no, I will. That's, but I that's... mean... Because I mean, but still, he's like, no, no, that's that's taking it too far, and he refused it. So uh, he um, was charged with war crimes against Japan. So how did this all end? Well, once they were being Japan was being taken over by Allied forces, and their time in the military it was over. I mean, I'm trying to think of when uh, the, the chronology of like Pearl Harbor, and then. The drop bomb string dropped and stuff. So you said that date was 44? Mm-hmm. Okay. So basically, they're done. So what did Yashiro do? Sorry, he. what did Shir- uh, Ishii do? He went out and sent orders to destroy everything. Yeah. Burned down buildings. Every single prisoner that was alive was murdered. They yeah. were... Destroy it all. Destroy it all. So... Records probably too. Mm-hmm. So Russia wanted Japan to be brought up on war crimes. And the Americans stepped in and 
they weren't charged with war crimes. And they said, look, hand over all your evidence and you're good to go. So they handed over all the test results from all these horrific human experiments to the U.S. And they used them to for the advantage of a healthcare system for healthcare and fighting disease in the U.S. These people that work there went on to carry on with their careers. They did not get charged. They were, they did not lose their jobs. Many were promoted. And so that's, that's how it ended. That alone, how do you go? They did that with Nazi Germany as well. The Americans went over and said, Hey, look, you know what? All these people died anyway. I mean, what can you do about those? <laughs> I mean, they're dead. But I mean, what you found out was valuable. So I'll tell you what, give us that, and uh, we'll we'll turn the turn away, and you just go and and uh, you know go home. So this was or done. They hired the freaking doctors. Yes, or they hired the brought, doctors. Brought them over to uh, the United States. So I mean, like in what's that show? Oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about um, with Robert De Niro. Yeah, the one that probably... Yeah, uh, I forget. Um, Hunters. Hunters? Yeah, Hunters. something like that, yeah. Um, so... But some of it's true, like... No, no, they, there's they, some... There was quite a few scientists they brought over from, from Nazi Germany. So how are you, in a sense, like, what, what a way of keeping your hands clean, right? So over here, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to inform people what we're going to do to them and then they're going to sign a a waiver saying you know it's okay you can test this on me and i'll get paid for it so it's my decision for human medical experiments we're gonna it's informed consent but at the same time let's let's gather all this stuff too and let the other ones go free it just makes me insane and i hate to think because we've benefited as canadians from these uh, findings. So, I mean, there's some shame in that. I mean, maybe I'm, um, yeah. you know, I, I shouldn't, I'm not going to take it to like, I am so disgusted in myself. I'm not. But when you really know, it's like, what is the cost? How do you decide? Is it worth it? So you can look back and say, or look now and say, oh, of course it was worth it. Because it saved how many lives? At what expense? So, thank you for listening to part two of this horrific story. And I want to just give out a big thank you to all of you who have been patient with me as I have undergone yet another surgery. But that is it for a while. I'm feeling good. And the next episode of Dr. Ewan Cameron... And to give voice to his victims and for them to tell their story is coming up next. Thank you to everybody who's listening, who has supported me on Patreon, who is in the Facebook group. You guys are all wonderful. And if you've got a minute and feel like leaving an iTunes review, I'd love that as well. Just make sure that you're taking care of yourself, taking care of each other, loving each other, and most importantly, love yourself. Peace. One love.